Written sometime after the year 70 of our common era, the Gospel of Matthew seeks to make Jesus' own words and actions authoritative for a mix of Jewish and Gentile community. It seeks to persuade by presenting the events as realities, not superstitious myths. It harkens back to earlier Jewish experiences of divine action in human life. And it appeals to an audience that has a very high esteem for ethical conduct and what you're supposed to do. The lesson for today occurs relatively early in Jesus' ministry after his lengthy Sermon on the Mountain in which Jesus tells crowds, blessed are the poor in spirit and do not worry about your life. It's when he teaches them to pray and so much more. And then Jesus begins to move through the countryside and he performs a series of miracles and continues to instruct people who begin to follow him. Matthew sculpts a gospel of Jesus' words and deeds using both for us to understand who he is and who we are to be. You cannot understand the words apart from his actions, nor are his actions clear without the instructions. With both, we begin to realize the Christology and discipleship. And that's exactly what we have in this reading, two short instructions and a very brief miracle. Listen for God's word to us this day as I read from the eighth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Now when Jesus saw great crowds around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. A scribe then approached and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds have air, have air, in the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then another of his disciples said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And then he got into a boat and his disciples followed him. A windstorm arose on the sea so great that the boat was being swamped by waves, but he was asleep. And they went to him and woke him up saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, you of little faith? And then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a dead calm. They were amazed, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Here ends our reading. Please pray with me. God, you have spoken to us through your Son. Let your written word now be spoken and heard by each of us. Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand that we may not refuse your calling or ignore your voice. Humble us to accept your truth that we may learn and bring our every thought captive to obeying Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. The 19th century philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche once wrote, how typical of those Christians, especially the clergy, they are weak and cannot be anything but weaklings. So they make a virtue out of necessity, constructing a moral system that glorifies weakness in order to exert their will to power over the truly strong and virtuous. Such bravado, it sells. Time and time again, we experience that wisdom and skills are no longer sufficient. Virtues such as humility and respect for the other have little currency in our common media. And bravado works not just in political context, contests, but reflects other areas where self-aggrandizement, 
brings attention and authority in such a way that it's risky and difficult to stand in the way. Now, all of this is certainly common today, but it stands in stark contrast to a recent experience. I'm grateful last weekend my colleagues allowed me to slip out on very short notice to take a quick trip to Scotland. My husband's family had gathered in Aberdeen to witness my father-in-law's investiture as a Knight of the Legion of Honor from the French Republic. Jack had served as a Spitfire pilot more than 70 years ago and now was honored for his, I quote, heroic service during World War II with others who fought to liberate the people and nation of France. At first, he wasn't going to participate in this event since at 94 years, it's difficult for him to leave the village. But moreover, he's a true stoic Scot and he doesn't want anyone to make a fuss. But Jack had been thinking about his friends who had died in the war and those who had died following the war and all of those who should have been honored so it was for them that we went. The service was hosted by the Lord Provost of Aberdeen in the old council chambers, which were beautiful and red velvet and elegant. And it was conducted by the French consul with two other World War II veterans, one from the Navy and one from the Army, who were also in their 90s. They had barely thin white hair and their hearing aids, but they seemed to appear in a uniform because they were all wearing blue blazers. Each was accompanied by their family of children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. And already affixed to their blue blazers were medals that these veterans had obviously dusted off, and many of which family members didn't know existed. Just before we began, there was a group of preteen boys in uniforms that were seated. They were from the local French school. French consul began and he was quite animated in his conversation describing the award and the red ribbon that symbolized blood and the medallions and all of it portrayed on this ornate gold medallion. It was originated by Napoleon and it is the highest honor the French Republic will bestow. But it had been 70 years, so why now? And what about all those who had died in the war and what about those who died 10 and 20 years ago that should have received it but didn't? Although those questions were not asked, the consul framed the reason for this honor as now being conferred in that I quote, we need, we need to remember. And then his pace became very measured and with solemn words he reminded us 70 years ago, Europe had become a fortress controlled by the Nazis. He said, I quote, France had collapsed. The French government and institutions no longer existed. And then with all the decorum you would imagine from a French dignitary, this consul spoke to each man of his military record while looking in his eyes, and then he placed the medal on his chest and kissed each cheek. Then he addressed the French schoolboys. They were present to witness Francis's honoring of these men, and I quote, to remember each day to take a step in the right direction to get up and do something for others. And he concluded the ceremony by telling us, we need to remember. Now it's no surprise there was no media coverage of this event. Old men do not sell newspapers, nor does it sell advertising time on TV. At this event there was no bravado, there was no chest thumping or rhetoric of grandeur. These were humble men and we also witnessed genuine humility and gratitude from the French government of its debt to those who had served 
not seeking honor or fame or power. They were just doing what was right. So we do need to remember. Our scripture lesson includes a brief dialogue with two potential followers of the cost of discipleship. Jesus tells the first man a scribe. A scribe is someone who is established in the community and someone who's well-respected for all of what he knows and does. He tells the scribe that to be his follower is to accept that birds of the air had nests and foxes had holes, but God's son does not claim any place on earth. This is about as humble as it gets. He's homeless. If this scribe were to be his follower, he too would need to let go of all the trappings of security and cease all of his efforts at maintaining his stature in the community. To the second, a grieving son, Jesus tells him to abandon his obligation to bury his father. Now, some translations soften this by inserting the word spiritual, and instead of just translating, they're actually interpreting it to say, let the spiritual dead bury the dead. But the original Greek is terse and it's callous. Jesus just says, let the dead bury the dead. In first century Palestine, a son brought honor to the family by carrying out the duties of a proper burial. This man was bound to rituals and customs prescribed by society, and if he didn't complete it, it would be shameful for not only him, but the whole family. But that's just it. Jesus tells him to forget about his reputation, forget about appealing to the standards of common culture and any ranking that people construct. You're just supposed to forget about that and just place nothing in your heart than being 100% with Jesus right now. The demands were radical and non-negotiable. In a thin book entitled Humilitas, author John Dixon paints a picture of the ancient culture and the way in which honor was elevated as to be one of the highest virtues, and its opposite, shame, was a punishing loss. A father amongst the ancients would desire a son to experience happiness and wealth within his lifetime, certainly live a moral life, but more than anything, a father would desire for his son to bring honor to the family. In addition to ancient Hebrew customs, Aristotle also shaped the culture with such wisdom as I quote, honor and reputation are among the pleasantest things through each person's imaginings that he has the qualities of an important person, all the more so when others say so. So it's in this ethos that the ancients thought nothing of praising themselves in public or better yet getting someone else to praise them. Of course, you were to seek honor in your life. It's a Greek word known as philotima. It's literally the love of honor, the pursuit of tangible and intangible honor. And this afforded no room for humility, which was perceived as being brought low, and its potential risk of shame. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? It persists yet today. Yet to those who wanted to become a follower, Jesus asked for that. He asked for humility, to no longer obsess with trying to be in control of what others thought about them, to no longer work to achieve status through their own efforts, and to refrain from blowing their own horn. Although not part of this teaching, it becomes apparent later on to become a follower of Jesus also demands that they stop separating themselves from the outcasts and rather they are to gladly embrace those who are weak and hurting and need help. To be his follower was a radical and tall order. Forget about honor and risk shame. 
Matthew pairs these two teachings with a brief miracle story. Remember, Matthew teaches through actions and words together. So Jesus gets in a boat to cross, all we're told is to the other side, an unnamed body of water destined for an unknown location, and his disciples followed. Now these metaphors are never ornamental. The image of this journey is to cross from their current way of life to where? They don't know. While on the water, a storm erupts, and yet Jesus just sleeps. Fearing for their lives, the disciples can only wonder if their faith is misplaced in this seemingly indifferent man of Jesus. And they wake him and plead, Lord, save us, we are perishing. And by a simple word, Jesus commands, dead calm. Matthew's brief passage concludes with both a literal, but more importantly, a rhetorical question. What kind, not who, but what kind of man is this? When the disciples recognized the water and winds obeyed Jesus' voice and all that had threatened their lives was now calm, it's as if a new kind of fear emerges, the awe of being in the presence of the living God. Those Hebrews remembered, it was God who parted the waters at the Red Sea. It was God who offered safe passage. It's God who always subdues the sea monster, and it was God who calmed the waters for the prophet Jonah when he too was going to perish. We can only imagine they are afraid, not only of what they face, but also of the changes that they will need to make in their lives. No one is untouched by a miracle. Either they will accept the cost of discipleship and become followers, or they'll try to ignore it and flee to the other side. And if they try to ignore what they have seen and heard, they will need to build even bigger fortress of lies to live into the illusion that they can maintain control over their lives and that they don't need any help. But if they accept his divinity and let go of their layers of hubris, they are able to follow Jesus fully and completely. Through Jesus, God upended our world, the most humiliating death of all by the cross became the proof that greatness can express itself in humility and that the noble choice is to lower yourself for the sake of others in need. And when we accept Jesus and become his follower, through his strength, we get to show the world the face that God created for us to wear, a face that's unique and beautiful. We get to spend our energies pursuing each other in love and in friendship, remembering to step out each day and serve one another and no one gets to keep score. We also get to live into the freedom of really living since we have the ability to make mistakes and there is a grace that covers us and turns us back into living. Those we are honoring today in congregational care exemplify the humility in being a follower. Yes, we are recognizing them by name and it filled up the entire bulletin. And we're talking about their service, but quite honestly, it's not because the recognition matters. It's because we know that we live in a community that seems to say that everything's always fine and we're always fine. But yet we do experience difficulties in sickness, in death, in divorce, and we are there to comfort one another. Most often those on Care Guild or the Knitting Ministry or Prayer Circle or Stephen Ministry can speak of their deep gratitude for the time that they were humbled and received care from someone else. 
With great discretion, Caregill delivers meals to those without the energy or the time or the ability to feed a family because they're in crisis. The meal is sustenance, but it's also the solidarity of another one who is essentially quietly saying, I care for you, and I will not abandon you when your life seems to be out of control. We exert so much energy to ensure that we have life always under control. And with enough power and money, we think we can build security and a path forward, and we can include just those we think fit for our company. But on this faith, or on this path, faith sometimes gets to become optional. So what does humility cost? John Dixon writes, humility is the noble choice to forego your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. More simply, the humble person is marked by a willingness to hold power in the service of others. Humility never makes the headlines and it doesn't get retweeted. So we need to remember that the path to following Jesus is possible only when we are willing to admit that we are not in control and instead make the wholehearted commitment to place our trust and faith in him and in him alone. Amen.